0: This episode of the
1: Geek Quorum: classic PC games and the hottest board games from GenCon. Hello, and welcome to the Geek Quorum. It's a fracking podcast.
2: It's a fracking podcast about sci-fi, fantasy, gaming, all kinds of geek topics. And my name is Brian. I'm Burn. You can find us on the web at geekquorum.com. You can email us at gquorum at gmail.com. That's spelled G-Q-U-O-R-U-M. Find us on Facebook. If you look up Geek Quorum or Galactica Quorum, our legacy first podcast, Uh, that's on Facebook, so you can interact there. Find us on
1: iTunes. While you're finding us on iTunes, by all means, leave a review. Every podcast you listen to says this. It's true for us. It's true for them. Every review we get, Every rating we get helps others find this podcast. Um, So if you like what you listen to, if you have fun, please leave a review. It's really helpful to us.
2: Yes. And also spread the word on all the social networks you use. We're on Twitter as well. We're at Geek Quorum. I always find it funny when people have to give their – Twitter address, and they always put the at in front. Like, to me, that just seems redundant. I don't know. I just – people know, right? Don't they know? People know.
1: People know. People yeah. know. So. All right. And, this- if they, and if they don't, they're, they're a lost cause. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's see. What's new? Um, so uh, last time, Aaron was telling us and recommended to me the game Last of Us, which was another game created by Naughty Dog. Mm-hmm. Because I was going on and on about Uncharted and how amazing it was. And in between then and now, I have played and completed The Last of Us. And I have to say, he was right. It was an amazing game. And yet another game that kind of shows where games are going. And that's with just the, the strong kind of narrative force of these games, kind of getting closer and closer to interactive movies. Really fun. Have you played Last of Us or seen it?
2: Uh, no, I don't have PlayStation, so I believe that's an exclusive for that.
1: Brian, you're, I, don't, I don't know what to say. You've you, you got to fix that problem because this, <laughs> this is great. The, the other – as long as I'm kind of um, plowing ahead with this, right? The head of Naughty Dog. I think it was the head of Naughty Dog, but one of the muckety-mucks at Not Naughty Dog. Not the tail of Naughty Dog. Not the tail. Ooh, that was bad. That was bad. Not the tail. <laughs> Sorry, do you now see what you did? All right. Uh-huh. Not one of the heads, but a muckety-muck. Left uh, Naughty Dog and was recruited into another company called Visceral. And Visceral is making the next Star Wars narrative interactive game that's going to kind of be a cross between Uncharted and um, Assassin's Creed. Hmm. There's a lot of speculation online. There's a few gameplay videos that you can go find. So if you're a Star Wars fan, like this is mouthwatering. Like it's just the graphics. Every game, I feel like, that is coming along in in this kind of genre. Every single time they release a new game, it's on a new game engine. And the game engines just keep getting better and better. So if you have a chance, go to, I think, EA or StarWars.EA.com. And somewhere in there, you're going to see something about Visceral Entertainment or this game. They have a few snippets of gameplay. It's really early on. But, man, it's eye-popping. It's Hmm. eye popping. I'm really excited about that stuff.
2: Well, I definitely want to check that out. I'd be curious if there someone must have done a retrospective of of narrative gameplay over the many years. And uh, for me, I think one of the first games that really started narratively to really make things click was Half Life. That was a PC game back in the day. It was the first of the Quake licensed engine games that really took off and uh at the time there was a couple they were being done all by a bunch of developers all out of texas and that's kind of where that at the time the hotbed of develop, the development was and um yeah that came out and man that was just amazing and then half-life 2 so i would i don't know that'd be i'd love to see if someone has done something like that where they just took games where you just really have a really interactive story i guess bioshock would be um one that followed along later you know people were debating whether a game can be art because it was it was so narrative and story driven so
1: there was i'm reading a very interesting book right now my wife is a librarian and she is our family librarian and she recommended a book called reality is broken why games make us better and how they can be a force for positive social change And one of the things they're talking about, especially in the early part of the book, which is really just trying to focus and impress upon the reader how the scale of games today, one of the things they talk about is Halo. And as we're talking about these kind of narrative games, Halo, which is not a game I have played, and there is a great deal of shame I have in that, (laughs) but I, I have not played it. But the book describes the world of Halo, and it's amazing because they talk about how the game designers really wanted to imbue in the game a sense of purpose. So the story is not a story in the sense of say uncharted, right? There's not this kind of beginning, middle and end. It's 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 indefinite. But what they said they really wanted to create a sense of in the game is a sense of service that you're fighting a war and that every player is a soldier in this war. And they work really hard in pulling you into the world and making you committed to an effort, a collective effort by the community. And in that sense, I think there is that story. More importantly, which they, again, they talk about, was that sense of purpose inside the game. Uh, and I think that that's fascinating. That's that's a book that I'm about two-thirds of the way through. It is a fun book to read, and it's full of those stats. Like if you ever read like a Malcolm Gladwell book, it's like those stats where you're going to annoy the person you're sitting next to. <laughs> Because you're going to quote it constantly hmm. as you stumble upon one interesting tidbit after another.
2: <laughs> Makes me think of another book because I mentioned the Doom guys. Is uh, this is a very old book and it goes way back to the very beginning of like the first person shooter origins. And that's uh, it was a book called Masters of Doom, I think. And it basically talked about how Id Software designed Wolfenstein 3D. That was like the first. That was the first one that was really 3d in the sense that it wasn't just moving one quantum step at a time. And, you know, the, the walls moved in a, as you move your mouse and it was, it was, uh, anyway, it was nice because it talked about all the characters involved in that design studio, of course, John Carmack and John Romero. And so those are like rock stars back at the time of, of game design and very different personalities, of course. And, um, Anyway, I don't know where the hell you'd find that book now because again, it's really old. But um, if you like games, I looked, it up.
1: I looked it up. It is on Amazon, available in paperback and Kindle.
2: Okay, well, I definitely recommend that one because if you know anything about either gaming or even programming or like both or whatever, it's a quick read and it gives you some history. So,
1: well, speaking of so, speaking of games because you you mentioned narrative games, mm-hmm. and we're focusing on these kind of first person. Genre. Can you think back to your childhood around what were the games that you felt had the more most compelling stories and characters?
2: Uh, gosh, well, the first thing that comes to my mind is Zork. I played these Infocom games that were text games, and it's like reading a book. You don't need... The budget that your mind creates is better than anything that a movie studio can do, and... um I like many people. I had such a great gaming experience the first time I saw the, the prompt that said you're standing outside the house and there's a there's a mailbox there, <laughs> and it's just that game and that trilogy of games for Zork was great. It was, um, and then there was like other ones they did the Hitchhiker's Guide game, and there was uh, a couple other ones that were pretty classic too.
1: Now, did you get the graph paper? No, and build a map.
2: Uh, no, I probably would have made sense to, but I just. Again, I I was so immersed in that game. I it's like when it said you enter the kitchen, you you move this one panel out of the way, you slide through. You it's, it's dark. You better get a light, or the groo is gonna bite you know get you.
1: Yeah. Oh <laughs> was, my God, you your memory is impeccable.
2: There's fragments of sentences, descriptions from that game that I can still probably recite because I just remember them so much. I don't. But anyway, it was. i mean, what I'm saying is that I just knew it so intimately, and I was I felt like I was there. That I didn't need a map. I was just there. I could just go through it so uh, that's probably for me because at that time I had a Commodore 64 and that was my computer so there were some games that were at the time trying to stretch into narrative but I think it was hard at that time there you know things are still very much using very limited color palette and there's a huge huge leap from the very first console games of the Atari and the Intellivision and to computers that could do graphics that were I don't know what bit they were but they were Far ahead. I don't know. How about you? Did you have any games that were?
1: The one that comes to mind for me is uh, Maniac Mansion. Mm-hmm. It was a graphical game. It was made by Lucasfilm. Why it stands out for me was the writing. I remember it was the first kind of game I played that I was Laughing out loud, <laughs> I mean, I, I really thought it was for me at that age, uh, and I'd be very curious to see if the if the humor still stands up. It was just super witty. Mm-hmm. I lo- I love the Infocom games too. I played those, um, so I don't know, and and they're iconic to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't know why Maniac Mansion, you know, of all the ones, really jumped out. But I do I do remember that it was, you know, I think it was the same era, you know, as Sierra Online. Mm-hmm and all the King's Quest games, which I also loved. But Maniac yeah. Mansion, god, that was just super funny. It was really, it was, what does it say? 1980, it was came out in 1987 by Lucasfilm. Well, I'm not going to read the description, but uh, I thought it was really funny.
2: Yeah, so I think that was my first narrative game. I remember when one of the first Intel PC systems shipped, and not very many people had them, and I had a friend in my neighborhood who had had one, and he had a whopping five megabyte hard drive. So he was able, yeah, five wow. megabyte hard drive, and so he was able to play this game called Starflight, and it was the first for me, and probably one of the first period space exploration games. And I don't, I don't remember who made it i think it was a pretty moderately sized game studio um uh, i should look that i up. just
1: i just looked it up it said developed by binary systems binary and published by electronic Arts. yeah yep it was electronic arts
2: so i mean duh i mean that makes sense um so yeah it was
1: i remember this game
2: yeah you got in the ship you flew from one solar system to the other you went to different planets i don't remember much about it because I didn't have at that time a PC of my own. I still have my Commodore. So I just remember seeing it. But that was like the first time I thought, wow, someone could really make a game that where you could just have such expansive ways to search and explore. And if we flash forward now to, you know, 2016 and a month ago, No Man's Sky came out. And the promise of that one was that it was going to be all kinds of exploration. And uh, I don't know, it didn't do so well. I didn't play it, but I read enough reviews and commentary about it to see that it just didn't seem like it had a really a great game design.
1: But yeah, yeah, I'm I'm going through. I'm I'm just looking at screenshots and bringing it up, and it and it's jogging my memory. And what's so funny is the screenshots, right, are taken from clearly different monitors. I mean, I remember <laughs> so clearly like the graphics race mm-hmm. from CGA mm-hmm. to EGA, EGA yeah. to VGA to SVGA. Mm-hmm. And you can see clearly, like here is you know an EGA screenshot, yeah. you know where they only yeah. had sixteen colors, yeah and you know there's a there's a cGA which mm-hmm. is three colors yeah I, um,
2: I I still can't fathom how we endured having monitors <laughs> that had pink uh, yellow cyan <laughs> yes, yeah, cyan, and you know one other and somehow they managed to make posterized images enough so that they would look like something. Yeah, hats off to them <laughs> because oh, those right. that uh, I cannot believe that uh but you know, I had a friend that had a PC and he had for the longest time he had that kind of monitor and do we care? No. It was just the gameplay and the overall setting.
1: Well, there's also pictures of some of the materials that came in the box. Mm. And that is now also reminding me of some of the great Infocom games. Right. Yeah, because- can I just
2: say the one thing I really miss and pine for is the day when I would buy a game and it came with a m not just a manual, but sometimes like just beautiful accompanying artwork or supplementary materials or maps. Actually like if you bought like a Bard's Tale game or like a one of the other like exploring type of games, sometimes they come with a little cloth map and it'd just be like, Oh, that's so nice. And now you you get a game and it's like it comes with the disc. And, I'm, and that's it. And that's it. And maybe like a, a flyer for a, the next game that's coming out <laughs> or a piece of paper that says, here's the code for some DLC or something. It's I, for the longest time, just for nostalgia's sake, I kept the box for my devil one game be, <laughs> just because and I might still have kept, I don't think I kept the box, but I kept the manual because the, it was like 40, however many pages of manual and lore and all kinds of stuff. And it had awesome illustrations in it. And uh, they just don't do that anymore.
1: They don't. Well, they do, but not in not in video games. Yeah, like where I'm. Console games
2: never have anything anymore. No, it's done.
1: That that, that's error. But and maybe that's why I am loving board games so much. Yeah,
2: and and even like PC games don't because games I buy these days are on Steam. So it's that's obviously digital delivery. So there's no right.
1: And PlayStation, same thing. Like the game just gets downloaded. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing to accompany it. Yeah, that could be a good segue right there because <laughs> you had sent out a link or maybe we had talked about this. I can't remember. Yeah. Gen Con happened. Yes. And you and I both follow Team Covenant and they, they were there and they produced God a crap ton of videos reviewing and interviewing all the different game makers. And there were a couple games that I saw that I can't wait to play.
2: Which ones? Which ones are your favorite? I'll tell you some of mine.
1: The first video I watched, I, I liked the miniatures uh, of it first. It was called Seafall, mm-hmm. and then when I listened to the video, I was introduced to um, this new genre called Legacy, the right. Legacy genre, mm-hmm. which I've never played. But from mm-hmm. what I gather, are board games designed to be played once, right? And Seafall, in how it has this kind of progressive disclosure of rules, and how it has these hidden treasure chests that are revealed to you as you play the game. And as you open these treasure chests, you reveal more rules, more game mechanics, more pieces, and more complexity. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to try it. It yeah. sounds fascinating.
2: Yeah. Here's why Seafall could be a, the game of the year whenever it comes out. I don't know if it's coming out late this year or early next year, but yeah. So the guy who designed a couple of the legacy games, he did Risk Legacy and Pandemic Legacy, is the one that is doing Seafall. I never did Risk Legacy, but Pandemic Lemacy is on Board Game Geek as currently the number one game of all time. That's And these these things change or whatever, but it showed up there really fast and people went bananas for it. Um, now, if you've played Pandemic, and if you haven't, I'll explain it. It's, just, it's a board game. There is an outbreak and you play cooperatively to rid the globe of uh, this pandemic and uh, you Each person has a class that they get, and each turn you have certain actions you can do, and you move across the globe, and depending on your actions, you either try to cure a disease, or you try to uh, move to a different city, or you try to set up a research station or whatever. And it's a fun game. Uh, I like to play it a lot. Pandemic Legacy takes that game and basically turns it into, it's almost like like a TV series where you've got, like, episodes You start with a scenario, you play through. If you win, you go to the next scenario. If you lose, there's a scenario you you go to after you lose. And so the board, it's not just where you start over, you know, whenever you take out a game and you you set up the pieces and you start over, it changes and you follow a, I don't know if story is the right word, but you move through and the board environment is made in such a way so that how you do the previous sequences of games will determine how things go forward and there's like cards you're not allowed to open until you get to episode number eight
1: do i understand correctly that there are moments in the game where you're asked to destroy cards
2: uh i don't know i haven't played it uh i do own it i haven't played it because i need to have a game group that's committed enough to play it because you have to play it pretty routinely because you don't want to like just play it once and never play it again. So I want to have, make sure I have enough people to, to come by and, and, you know, every few weeks come by and, and play it. So I don't know about that. I do know that there's, if you're, if you're bad enough at it, there's a, an envelope that says, only open this if you've lost three times in a row. <laughs> so anyway, it's a fun game. And this new one sounds like it takes all the legacy stuff, mixes in new elements from a previously unseen game, brand new original game, and uh, it could be pretty... Pretty cool.
1: The only trouble with these games is cost. Seafall is eighty dollars, and that's the other thing. A lot of the games that have come out recently, mm-hmm. um, I saw Star Wars Rebellion, mm-hmm. which of course I'm, I gravitate towards because it's Star Wars, mm-hmm. but it's a hundred dollars. Yeah. Imperial Assault, a hundred dollars. And Armada is also not a cheap game just mm-hmm. to pick up and play. No. I really do feel like, man, if you're gonna, you better be committed to this game. Yeah. Because that's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful game, and this comes back to, I think, why I actually like these games. Mm -hmm. Because I like all the pieces. Yeah. I love the design. And some of the other games that I saw at Gen Con, I was drawn to just because of the aesthetic of the game. I think
2: the costs, yes, they are expensive, but like in the case of, say, Rebellion, yes, it's 90-some dollars, but if you play it, three or four times minimum, especially by the amount of time it takes to play, which in the case of Rebellion is like two to three hours. Yeah, I think you're kind of kind of getting your money's worth there. That's fair. Yeah. Speaking of games that take a long time and cost a lot of money, uh, one of the games I, I was, um, I know what you're thinking, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting into that yet. But um, it <laughs> okay. is, a, I'm going to bring up a, uh, another game that, They showed at Gen Con, which it's not a new game. It's a second edition. But when I saw it, I was like, wow, I'm really intrigued about that one. I really want to try it out. It's um, from Fantasy Flight. It's Mansions of Madness, the second edition. It's in the Cthulhu universe, uh, like many of their games are. And uh, in this game, in the first edition, you basically are in a mansion and you're trying to use your investigators to go through and um, eventually stem the tide of whatever demonic invasion is going to happen. People liked it. The drawback was it was incredibly complex. And there's a person who acted as the mansion overseer, basically, who was trying to thwart the investigators, who was all the other people playing. And they were acting cooperatively against this mansion Overseer person, and um, they said that the setup for the just to set the game up for what the the overseer was doing took like half an hour to do. So that alone was something that would be like, I just don't invest time in something that's going to take literally half an hour just to set up, and then you've got to manage the game and know all these rules. So now, what's different about the second edition, which is out now, is that they use an app to do all that. There's no longer an overseer. The app is the overseer. It shows you the different missions that you can set up. It, it says, place the tiles this way. It gives you uh, narrative text to read. It gives you all the things that you need, basically, and simplifies the setup immensely. It makes the game a lot less problematic in terms of like rules and things like that. Now, there's been a large... Cry from some people saying, "I don't want any app in my board game." <laughs> it's the two shall not mix, and what happens if they don't update the app? Blah 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 blah. I understand that, and again, this is not having played it myself. I it is on my list. I do want to get it, but if you do purchase a ninety dollar game and you do play it several times and you get your money out of it, and they never updated the app again. I think you will have got your money out of it. Yes, there's a danger that somehow Fantasy Flight goes out of business, they never develop their app again, and then you're just left with a box.
1: Well, the app should live forever in the store. It should, correct. But
2: there is a, a lifespan of apps. Apple just recently started booting out unused apps from way back in iOS, you know, three days or whatever. I mean, it takes years for that to happen. But um,
1: what's interesting is, you know, you mentioned that and I did see that, you know, I saw that at GenCom and I, too, had this initial reaction of um, I didn't know if I liked it or not. Mm -hmm. I felt kind of like it was cheating because I think uh, it's such an important part of that kind of the tabletop gaming experience Mm -hmm. for ill or good, Mm -hmm. you know, are all the pieces, is the setup, is the DM, is the kind of tactile nature of it. And I do appreciate it. But it was interesting, despite kind of my first impression and having kind of a negative, an initial, slightly negative reaction to it. Uh, as you were describing it again just now, I, I was thinking like it'd be very interesting for these games to explore how mobile-assisted games
0: mm-hmm.
1: could really work. So I mean, imagine where you know everyone was using their phone mm-hmm. to track their piece, or to track their game to message each other in the game, like if there was a c- component in which you had to kind of right. scheme. Yeah, but then I just felt like that's the trouble like it's such a slippery slope like right. at that point if you're going to build out a game or if you're going to build a physical game that relies on a mobile device to play yeah. why bother with the physical game right. at all at that point you might as well just build an, an exclusively online or right. in-app right. game experience yeah. but
2: yeah there's a, a a review I read I think it was an Ars Technica where the person in was playing The Mansions of Madness, second edition. And at one point they just posed the question of like, well, why couldn't this just be an iPad game instead of being a board game? And it's true, but I think as a supplement to a board game, it's fine. I think, like you said, there is a slippery slope where at one point, if the percentage of the the tablet becomes too much, then there's less and less reason for there to be actual physical pieces. And to me, the fun of the board game, besides the actual gameplay itself of just the game, is the social nature of it. And people sitting around and being able to chuck dice or to flip cards or to groan when something bad happens and to cheer when something good happens. And um, as a supplement, I'm okay with it. And that's why I do hope they do more stuff using digital enhancement. More than that, then yeah, it, it just, it would just be a A game you just download your iPad and just play it.
1: I think there is um, a huge opportunity for Twitch, which is the game streaming company, Mm -hmm. to do board games. Because what I would love to see and see more of, and because of course I obsess over Mm X-Wing, and I love watching all the different games people record, especially at competitions of people playing, I'd love to see that of board games in general. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is like a perfect one of those games where it's like, you know, you're going to spend a lot of money to get it. And an important, you, you don't know, like I, I I go to a game store about every other week with my son and we just kind of hang out and they have a little cafe and stuff. So we get hot chocolate or whatever. And I walk through and I look at all these beautiful boxes and I have such anxiety buying games, especially, you know, cause now they're getting more expensive and I'm like, well, am I going to enjoy this? Like the box, the art looks great. <laughs> But is this going to be, am I going to fill my closet with games I've played once? Right. And so, like, to be able to watch people play is not just fun, you know, more and more, but so important. Like, am I really going to spend 80 bucks, play this game once, and it's just going to sit in my closet and I'm never going to play it again? Because that will kill me. Yeah. I can only do that so many times before I'm like tossing tables left and right.
2: Right. Well, yeah, that's something to be wary of. is like, will I enjoy it enough to warrant the cost? If not, I guess it goes up on eBay or something like that. But the other thing for me is just, do I have the time and do I have a gaming group to play these with? I guess that's just a, a very local, localized problem or individualized problem. But when you have a computer, you can just hop on the computer and you will have in the interwebs any number of faceless opponents out there that are just going to hop on to some game lobby and, and play. But to actually get people sitting down on a Friday or Saturday night and uh, devote two to four hours to a board game, it's a little bit more hard to coordinate that. But again, that's what I think makes it fun. Yeah. So um, Let's see, some other games they were coming out. Team Covenant did a nice demo, or they've shown a demo, of a new, again, Fantasy Flight uh, game called Rune Wars. So Rune Wars... It seems like it's a mashup of the X-Wing Miniatures game in that it has miniatures that you can move, set a maneuver with a dial, and move them a certain amount of space. It has elements of the Armada game in that the way you win is by having certain victory conditions. So instead of like having just demolish the other army, uh, you have to have specific goals you're supposed to do, kind of like Armada. And then... From Imperial Assault, it has a couple things. The way you roll dice, if you're familiar with that game, it has... uh, Well, how
1: is that different? So in X-Wing, you know, it's really simple, right? They're like eight-sided die with three possible rolls. And I did notice that Imperial Assault, the die are more complicated.
2: Yeah, they're more complicated because they have... Uh, this is beyond the scope of this <laughs> discussion to go into the rules of Imperial Assault or any of these games for that matter, but it's just a little more complicated in what you have. They use very similar nomenclature for the dice roll, put it that way. So it's a combination of those things. Now, to be honest, I'd like the idea of a uh, fantasy theme, but I, I don't know this is the game for me because I just don't know that I have enough bandwidth to in my head to work out more squads with varying bits of cards that have this or that buff or do that thing to the other team or whatever. And the fact that it's going to be whatever the cost is going to be for these things, and they're not as far as I know, they don't, I don't think they're pre-painted, and I would want to paint them. And so I just, I don't know that this one's for me. I think I'm at my max for the amount of um, tabletop wargaming I can do at the moment.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. The um, the one, another one that looked good to me was Star Trek Ascendancy.
2: Yes. There's actually two Star Trek games that were kind of interesting. And um, But yeah, go ahead and describe the Ascendancy one.
1: Well, I mean, maybe you can do a better job of it. I remember watching the video. I remember thinking that's a game that sounds like a lot of fun, mm-hmm. but I don't remember all the details. Do you, do, do you? No, I don't.
2: <laughs> I don't really remember the details too much. I just recall that you can be, you know, one of the, the main races, whether it's the Klingons, the Romulans, or the humans, and or the Federation, I guess. You start with one area and you kind of expand out from there.
1: Here's what it says. This exploration expansion and extermination game pits Klingons, Romulans and the Federation against each other in a 2 to 3 hour game of discovery and combat. Holy, yeah. <laughs> the game comes in a box large enough to hold your batlith, but includes no board. The map of planets and warp lanes between them unfolds as each civilization plays. I think that's the mechan the thing that I thought was really interesting because I love games mm-hmm. where the where the board changes every single time like um mm-hmm. I mean, Carcassonne, the entire game is building the board. Right. But I like uh, Settlers of Catan for that mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. But it also says to keep going empires come into contact, which can lead to trade or conflict once their worlds finally connect to those of another player. When one member of our crew came back from an introductory to our play session, his first word was, wow. <laughs> but yeah, no, I like, I, I think I like that idea of like, you know, it starts, it's just a planet and, you know, you kind of mate a connection, like an edge to the planet. And then you put a planet on the other end, you know, on the other end. So you're like building a graph, if Mm. you will. Um, And the graph is the board. And I guess that's what they call warp lanes, Mm. right? I thought that was really interesting. I think that's what caught my attention.
2: Yep, keep an eye out for that one. Uh, The other game that's a Star Trek-based is called Star Trek Panic. So that one seems like it's based on another game, Castle Panic, and I'm not familiar with that. All I know is that you have a Enterprise model in the middle of the board, and there's players around it. And I don't know much more than that.
1: Well, that's super helpful, Brian. It's, it's not helpful <laughs> at all. <laughs> but as uh, long as you're dealing with little models of the Starship Enterprise, I mean, what could go wrong?
2: Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like you look at it, it's like, that looks cool.
1: Here's, here, I, I want to go off on a slight tangent here. Which is, if this is a game that's built on another game, at some point I hope to give you a quick review of another game I've played, which is echoes the same little um, gripe that I have, and that is the dependency on these games upon large franchises, mm-hmm. right? This is a Star Trek game. Mm-hmm. But if the rules and the game mechanics are just a carbon copy of another game, then it's purely relying on Star Trek to help drive sales, which I get Mm -hmm. that's logical. I mean, if I made a game, you want it to sell and you want not just the kind of the original concept of the game to sell, but you really want to make an impression in the industry by bringing new game mechanics and innovation into gameplay. But it's this reliance on these franchises that I don't know if it worries me, but like I love Star Wars. And I – of course I gravitate towards Star Wars, but I do feel like I could saturate myself with Star Wars. I know, I'm know i not there yet, <laughs> but I certainly – there is this tingling in the back of my brain of like, oh my god, another Star Wars game. I'll buy yeah. it. This is the last one. I promise. That's
2: why a few months ago when I asked you guys if there could ever be too many Star Wars movies and – you guys are like, no, I'm like, no. well, Star
1: Wars movies. Okay. I'm going to, I'm the Star Wars movie. That's different. Star Wars movies can go on forever, but like. Yeah. But if they came out literally
2: with one every year, would it not at some point just be like.
1: If as long as they're good yeah, movies, I'm okay with because movies are like, it's because merchandise has this way of seeping into the clothes you wear. I love the fact that my son has a lot of Star Wars shirts. I think that's really cool. I, you go to the playground and I'm like, oh my God. I would say 70% of the kids are wearing Star Wars shirts which of course I love but you really do like your whole life gets just infused by Star Wars mm-hmm. um and at some point like I start to crave something else like right. yeah and so I there's another game the game I was going to review which is a game that's out you can buy today it's called The Lords of Waterdeep
0: mhm
1: it's classic. branded Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. The game has nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. There's no RPG nature to it. There are no dice mm-hmm. that you roll. Like there's when I think of Dungeons and Dragons and whatever that conjures in your head, I'm telling you, it's not has nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. But it clearly is a game that needed to attach itself to the Dungeons and Dragons brand right. to get published. Mm-hmm. And that's tragic to me because the game itself is a ton of fun. I don't own it yet. I have a coworker who owns it. I've played it a couple times with her. And every time I play it, it's a lot of fun. And the game orbits around the genre, what does she call it? Worker placement. So the ge- concept of the game is you draw these cards, which are objectives. And the objectives are gather three of this resource type, which are just like little you know tokens. Uh, gather four of this resource type and two of these. And each round consists of a a series of turns in which you place a peg on the board and that generates resources. And the board is constantly changing too. So the way in which you can get resources and harvest resources or steal resources is a strategy in and of itself. Mm. And the game board is kind of has some elements that are static and the same every single time, but there are other elements that change every single time you play. But it's a really fast-paced game. The objectives are relatively easy. It's a game you could play reasonably with kids because there's nothing you could get with adults, I'm sure, with, or with certain players. You could get really deep into the strategy. You could get really conniving, and you could really screw your opponents over. But it, it doesn't necessarily rely on that. It's just such an accessible game. But anyway, I so I highly recommend Lords of Waterdeep. It's Dungeons and Dragons. It's about a fifty dollar game, if I remember correctly. It's on my birthday list, if my wife is listening, hint hint. Um, <laughs> she's not she's <laughs> not your listening wife she's list not to listening. the podcast? Um, hmm. if she is, I don't know about it. Um, anyway, it needs the Dungeons and Dragons brand to get published, and that to me is tragic because it's a game that should exist on its own.
2: Yeah, well, that's the that's the challenge. There's so many licensed games, and Fantasy Flight does have a whole bunch of them. Uh, I think one of the reasons Rune Wars is such a big deal is because it's not a a movie IP. It's not a whatever. Actually, I just saw a, a posting this past week where they had a limited relationship with Games Workshop, and that's ending apparently in uh, like three or four months. Uh, they, for many years, had made some Warhammer games. I think that is going to come to an end. So what that means is obviously Games Workshop makes Warhammer 40k. And so all those war games and board games will revert over to them. And so there's a void for Fantasy Flight. And so that's where Rune Wars comes in. It seems like fewer games that are brand new, like even games that seem like they're obscure enough. Like take, for example, that Mansions of Madness game. It's like it's not just a scary investigate the mansion game it's a cthulhu universe game so even that has you know stuff behind it so you're right it'd be great if there was more original stuff and i think stuff does come out that is but doesn't this apply to like everything like wouldn't we love to not see so many sequels in movie theaters wouldn't we like to see you know no more reboots of stuff on tv like do we really need a lethal weapon tv show on fox
1: this fall jesus really
2: yeah, it'd be it'd be nice if they did have some non-licensed stuff here and there. But people flock to what they're familiar with, and then if it needs an assist to get you know that logo stamped in the box to get people's attention, I guess that's the price
1: yeah. we pay. So this is yeah. the Fantasy Flight episode, yeah. Um, everyone, uh, uh, clearly, since we have talked about um, now how many different well, games. Well, there are,
2: have been other games we've s- talked about. I mean, there's another game company, so it's not entirely just about them, but. Obviously, they do get a lot of attention and money from me. I think that kind of wraps up this, again, game-centric episode. Maybe we'll cut this one in half, and then we'll do a actual next time that actually is a next time and not just something goofy. And um, wouldn't that be a nice little cliffhanger? Who knew? Who knew? Maybe we'll do that. Yeah. So again, you can find us on the web at geekquorum.com and email us at G at gmail.com and find us on Facebook and look for us on Twitter using those two same search terms. And I do believe I hear our theme music and the jump clock is running. All that means one thing. And that is, it's time to say goodbye. So thanks again for joining. Thanks for Skiznot for the theme music. See you next time. See
1: ya. Next time on the geek quorum.
2: Shall we shift to another mega franchise game and talk about X Wing?
1: We shall. We, we shall. must.